Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, motivational speaker, women's empowerment coach, full-time psychology student, mama four, and military spouse. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and real stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey guys, today I'm here with Lauren. Lauren Hope is a former television reporter turned motivational speaker, blogger, advocate, and certified peer recovery specialist. Lauren began sharing her mental health journey on her blog, Good Girl Chronicles, two years ago. And a friend of mine told me when we were at hockey that she actually had read your blog. <laughs> so it's, it's a small world. Lauren and I uh, live near each other, so it is a very small world here in Hampton Roads. Um, so she was surprised to learn her story helps so many others accept their mental illness. The past two years, Lauren has, the, has traveled the state to share her story of surviving suicide, homelessness, and mental illness. She is currently writing her first memoir about how mental illness destroyed her life and how storytelling saved it. And if you're in the Hampton Roads area, Lauren actually does storytelling uh, nights. I haven't been able to make one. It just hasn't worked with my schedule yet, but it, it will before I move in June. I mean, we'll make it happen. But uh, so I'm going to link that up in the show notes in case anybody wants to attend and they can get in contact with you. But Lauren, I want you to take us back. You mentioned in your bio how you struggled with mental illness. When was the point in time where you realized something isn't right here? Something's going on because everything's falling apart. Yeah, I actually started to um, realize something was wrong when I was about 16, 17. I started to have these really intense chest pains, like shooting pains. Like it almost felt like somebody was like choking me and my windpipe was closing. And um, there was really no physical reason for why that was happening. And when we went to the doctor and they said, it sounds like you might have anxiety disorder. I was like, I don't even understand what that means. You know, I was in high school in the nineties. And so nobody, (laughs) nobody was talking about those things. So it was it was hard for me to absorb and I'm a black woman. And so my mom, when we went home, it was like this very secretive thing. Like, Hey, you know, you take these meds to keep your pain at bay, but don't tell anyone outside of this house. I know in my heart that my mother meant well. Um, but the fact that I had this thing that I couldn't talk about, I was like, well, something must be wrong with me. I mean, Girls in high school were talking about heavy periods. Everyone was scared about getting multiple sclerosis then. Um, all kind of crazy stuff. And this was this one thing that I was struggling with that I couldn't tell anybody. So it really started to become an issue for me when I was 17. And I first started to struggle with suicidal ideation when I was about 18. Okay. Well, so you went on the medication, which helps. But I mean, obviously, as you said in your story, the stigma and having to hide our mental illness is, is really hard. I went through a similar uh, experience when I was a teenager as well, not with anxiety, but I had depression. It was just like, cheer up. You're going to be okay. Like you don't really talk about it. It's kind of swept under the rug. And I'm just like, my parents divorced. <laughs> like I moved from like New York to Florida away from all my friends and family, like all these things that would trigger, you know, a normal person was triggering me that I'd already dealt with depression most of my life at that point in time. So I completely understand how you would feel like, Hey mom, I know you were trying to do the best, but you really didn't help here. So did you, how long did you continue on the medication? 
So I was on that med for to my early 20s. It's so interesting the similarities that we have. So right around the time I started struggling with suicidal ideation, my parents started going through a nasty, nasty mm-hmm. divorce. And they were telling me all terrible things about the other person. And my parents did the same thing. What's up with that? Like, I don't feel why? alone now. <laughs> now I don't feel as weird because you know, yeah. I have one parent telling me about infidelity, about another parent withholding money. Same here. Yeah. So that was a lot of weight for me to carry. I was the oldest and mm-hmm. I really thought Same. that it was my responsibility to like be the glue. Um, right. I now know that that was only contributing to like my mental illness mm. and it was triggering it, but I didn't know that then. I even went to therapy alone. So like it all felt like my issue. Mm-hmm. And um, like a lot of people, because I couldn't accept that I had a mental illness and that felt so taboo, I was there. I did not take my meds on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And so every time I would be on a great like rhythm, I wouldn't take the meds and I'd have a massive anxiety attack. <sighs> then in my... Um, my mid twenties is when I started having my, my first depressive episode. And that was scary too, because I'm on this television reporter track. I'm like, I'm trying to lose all this weight to look good, to be on television. And now I have this unexplainable sadness and fatigue. And so it was compounded. And, um, and then I received a major depressive disorder diagnosis, which was super hard to swallow. Yeah, no, I understand. It's it's definitely I was diagnosed with clinical depression after um my suicide attempt in 2013. Yes, 2013, like 5 years ago. And it's hard to say, "Oh, there's something going on here" because you want to think like it's just in my head. Like it's really not that big a deal. And you lose motivation when you're depressed. Mm-hmm. So you're on this track to become a TV reporter and now you're like lethargic and you're depressed and you're losing your motivation. So how did you manage to become a TV reporter with all that going on? Yes. Yeah. So funny. Interestingly enough, I actually wanted to be a therapist like you. I swear we're soul sisters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I took a public speaking class and this lady says, I think you'd be a great reporter, which seemed totally out of the realm for me, but I changed my major, went to BCU and then um, just very quickly opportunities came. I did a small project with MTV News in 2008. Um, I worked for NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. And then um, I got my first full-time gig in Lynchburg, Virginia, if anyone knows where that is, where Liberty University lives. (laughs) And um, so I started reporting there for three years and that was so incredibly hard. I was very, very symptomatic there. Um, Like, Gosh, I don't even know how I survived those three years. Um, For a lot of people who struggle with mental illness, finding the med that works for you can take a long time. Mm -hmm. So I was trying these different types of meds that weren't working. Some were giving me like terrible side effects like dry mouth, insomnia, rapid speech. Um, And so then I would have this experience with this med and then I'd chuck it towards the end of my contract in Lynchburg. Um, I had convinced myself again that I cured myself of mental illness. So I went off my meds. I was like, oh, I got this thing. The meds were making me feel like I got this thing, but that's okay. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Right. And th- then I had a massive, massive reaction to this med that sent me into a manic episode. Um, and that mania panicked me so bad. I ended up in the hospital and I was off air for five days. And that was like, whoa, this is like a serious serious thing. So I did not really 
succeed well. I succeeded in hiding it and managing it in crazy ways. Um, working out a whole bunch, um, taking a lot of energy drinks, uh, putting on makeup to cover insomnia. I learned how to disguise the fact that I was struggling. Ooh, I loved how you just said that. I learned how to disguise the fact that I was struggling. Because one thing I hear from people all the time when they find out, like, because they become friends with me on Facebook or they start following my videos or listen to podcasts, they're like, you don't seem like somebody who would be depressed. I was like, I'm really good at faking it. Like, I mean, I remember being a kid and experiencing depression. So I'm now 32 years old. You're talking about like a good, like 20 some years of faking. I'm good now. Like I'm putting on a smile and everybody thinks I'm fine, but inside, like, I feel like I'm falling apart, you know? And so I love how you said that, that you got really good at disguising how you were feeling. Like what happened? When did you stop being able to disguise and it all came crumbling down because you said former TV reporter and I know a little bit of your story. So I know that at some point in time you couldn't fake it anymore. Yeah. I, um, 2014, which is not that far ago. Um, for me, um, in, in Hampton roads where we live, there is a big mega station here that everybody wants to work for. And so that was my dream to work at this station. And, um, I definitely didn't, realize how seeing people the worst of people was going to affect my mental illness when Mm -hmm. I wasn't even having it in check I was the weekend night reporter for a while so I saw a lot of death a lot of um I saw the ugly in people and the, the hardest thing about that as a tv reporter is that I have to go then stick a camera in your face while you're crying and I'm trying to solicit those tears um and I don't know how some people disconnect from that I probably internalized it way too much Mm -hmm. and I took it home with me and I never turned the news off. Um, And then I definitely wasn't making great choices in my love life. I was with this guy who just was so terrible to me. Mm -hmm. These were all things that were compounding my mental illness and I just didn't see it. So slowly um, I just started realizing that like I didn't need to eat a lot of food to survive. Like I would like have yogurt and a coffee for like, days straight and I was fine. So I was losing a lot of weight. Um, then I would feel extremely fatigued. And then some days I'd be up to 20, 48 hours that I hadn't slept. I knew something was wrong, but I just didn't, I don't know. I was really scared of the bottom falling out. Um, I heard how other television reporters talked about people with mental illness, that they're crazy or they're off the rocker. So I didn't feel like I had anybody in the newsroom to talk to. And, uh, my parents just were going through their own thing and I felt invisible to them. I really just felt like there was no way out of this like numbness that I felt. I started calling out of work. Um, and I just, it's so hard for me to like explain what led me to try to take my own life. I just remember not, just not wanting to feel this emptiness and this heaviness anymore Mm -hmm. and just feeling like every day I was waking up dreading going to work, interacting with people. I just wanted to be off the hamster wheel. And so um, in May of 2014, I survived um, a suicide attempt. And 
that I had to go to, I had to go to a psych ward, which if you've never been to one, I think it's really scary, like your first experience. And I thought, wow, mentally, this is, this is my rock bottom. And I'm in there and I know that these people have seen me on television. So I can't even, (laughs) I can't even like focus on my own treatment really, because I'm a hypersensitive, like, oh my God, they think I'm crazy. So um, when I left, I didn't have, I think my parents were like, all right, she's good. She's on the meds. She's good. She's going to pick right back up and things are going to keep moving. Yeah. But it, it didn't. And so um, I would say probably about 45 days later, like I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it. It, it wasn't a magic fix. Like I thought it would be. And um, I started going to work and like literally sitting at the computer with a blank stare. Now this used to be a job that I could do like the back of my hand. And I'm like, Oh my God, no words are coming to my head. Oh my God, I have a deadline. Oh my God, you're terrible. Oh my God, you're going, they're going to fire you. You know, like it was so paralyzing. And so I walked in one day, like four days after my birthday, I said, dude, I can't do this. And he's like, what? I don't get it. Like you're on air. We see you. The It's coming out. And he's like, I, I, I just can't. And so I walked away from this dream career and I really didn't think through the impact that would have on me and my life. I just wanted to get out. And like mentally, that's when the bottom fell out. Yeah. Yeah. Cause people don't see that when we're talking about mental health struggles that it really can be like this compound effect like one thing happens another things happens and so on and so forth and you really come to this point where you're like I have no idea what the hell is going on here I don't know why things are falling apart I don't know what's going on why I can't do the things I need to and we do think like if I go and I get help it's going to be this magic fix so my after my suicide attempt my husband or I should say during it, my husband was like, you need to go get help. You need to go get it now. Like, because we need you. And I was like, you don't need me. The world doesn't need me. Like I'm so empty inside. And, uh, that obviously was not true. I am where I am today. But when I went and saw that, that therapist for the first time, I was thinking, well, I'm just going to see her for a couple weeks. I'll be good to go. Everything will be fine. Five years later, I'm still in therapy. <laughs> so yeah, it doesn't work like that. Like people think that there are these magic fixes and they think, oh, if I get just get the medication, I'll be better. But if we don't deal with the things behind what's causing those symptoms, it's not going to get better. The medication is just going to be like a Band-Aid on the boo-boo, but it, the boo-boo is not really a boo-boo. It's a big gaping wound that we need to heal. And I, I think that's a lot of the misunderstanding of a lot of people. So you're not the only one, obviously. We all think like that. We all think we're going to be all right. It's okay. So what happened after you walked out of that job? Because now you don't have an income. So I don't have an income. And um, for like a month, my parents just kind of let me flounder and sleep. And and I don't think it really hit me. Yo, you just walked away from your career. Like, you, that's it. Like, it just didn't connect. I had made my, I, that job was my identity. Um, it was why I woke up. It was, you know, why I thought I was fabulous. And so when I lost it, I lost myself. Like I felt like I had no reason to get out of bed. Um, and my parents were just on my back. You need to go in the military. You need to do something. You're wasting your life away. When in hindsight, if I knew what I knew now, I would have went into intense inpatient with the good insurance that I had at the time. Right. 
But um, so after that, you know, I got this rinky dink retail job, which was so, I'm not saying anything to retail. That was crushing for me. Like I was, I'm putting up clothes and viewers are like, oh my God, that's that girl who used to be on the news. She's putting on clothes. Like what is, you know, like viewers would come and get and like kind of gasp and that made me feel worse. Then it just got to the point where there would be times during my shift, I would just sit in the, in the uh, dressing room and stare off into space, like for a good hour or two, which is so odd to say. And um, so I existed, I just existed for almost two years. And um, I did that job for a year. And then I, I, which was very odd, I started to develop anxiety about interacting with people. I'd see them and I'm like, oh my God, they're thinking this about me. They're thinking this, I'm going to say the wrong thing. And so then I started coming up with very creative reasons why I couldn't go to work. So finally, I just, I couldn't, the thought of going to work was terrifying. Like I just couldn't turn my mind off to the fact that like people weren't thinking all of these terrible things about me. So, um, so yeah, for two years, I was in the worst depressive episode of my life. Like I never knew that depression could be that crippling, like to the point where once I stopped going to work, I was like, I don't really have a reason to shower. There were weeks on end where I didn't shower. And because I was okay with it. I didn't realize I smelled. My mom would be like, uh, we need to have a talk about hygiene. And I'm like, what? I don't understand. Um, I started to pull my hair out at the scalp. Just, I don't know. I don't, it almost was just like to remind my body that it felt pain because I'm still alive, that I'm still here because Mm -hmm. I just felt like I was existing. I had a very sad existence. I like, my life was revolved around young and the restless. I would like get up, and then I would show my face and then I'd sleep. And then I'm like, Oh, it's noon. Young, the restless time. So, um, my parents didn't really become alerted to the problem when I wouldn't come out to eat with them. Cause eating was the one thing that I, you could bank on me doing. It was the only thing right. that brought me joy. So I said, Oh, I can't go out to eat with you because, um, I, my hair's a mess. They're like, Oh, well, we get your hair done. She bought me makeup that day and clothes and Literally the hour before we were supposed to go to dinner, I broke down in hysterics at the idea of going outside of the house. And so then they, re- they were like, yo, this is really an issue. So um, they said, listen, we want you to put your condo up on the market for rent and move in with us. And we're going, you're going to be under our care for an entire year. Mm-hmm. And we just want, I'm going to watch you take your meds. Like you're going to have to check in with me. Like you're going to be a teenager, but this is a year for you to focus on just getting yourself together. I wish that it would have been that way. But when I moved in, it was very clear that my parents were struggling with their own things. They got divorced and they got remarried, but they- Oh Lord. Oh man. Terrible. That's terrible. That is so terrible. I just can't imagine my parents getting back together. (laughs) Exactly. Right. They fought three years to get away from each other. And so they still got all of this toxicity and they just got back together. And when I moved in, I was like, holy crap, like this, this is a hot mess. My parents are not happy. Um, I have a Down syndrome sister who has profound health problems. Like she has a trach and they're caring for her. And so what, so me moving in and being dependent on them and not really feeling motivated to contribute to the household magnified their stress. However, I don't know that I anticipated how bad things were going to get. You know, I saw my mother being physically abusive towards my Down syndrome sister, which was hard for me, mm-hmm. and no one, no one doing anything. And um, 
I just, I felt suffocated there. My mother was starting to make threats towards me and that really scared me. Um, and it came to a head in May of 2016. And, um, we even, I even had to call a crisis intervention officer to our home. And he looked at me and he said, listen, you need to leave, you need to leave, give them a couple of days to cool off. And then, you know, maybe consider some family counseling. So I left with every thought and intention that I was going to be able to come back. And then I get an email from my stepfather that says, we've changed the locks on the doors. And um, I was like, wow, I, I can't even like, it, it's still, even though like, I know that that happened to me, like that wasn't supposed to be us. Right. So I was, I was homeless for an entire year. What did that you was, do? Oh my gosh. So once they, um, they changed the locks. I couch surfed for a while. And that, if you've ever couch surfed, you go through every bone in your book and then you've exhausted every person. So then, um, I had just enough money to keep this office space that I had when I was trying to make the blog a business. I slept under the office desk for a while. Um, I'd wait till everybody left. I'd sleep. I'd take a hoe bath in the bathroom where you just clean your essentials. Tell us what a hoe bath is because some people might not know what that means. I know, but we call it a military shower where I'm from. Oh, <laughs> a military shower. You, it's just think, but you I just clean where you go with this. <laughs> you clean the essentials, you know, your lady parts and your armpits, and we keep going. And that was. <laughs> I forget that not everybody knows that. Yeah, not everybody um, knows. I'm, I knew what it meant, but my audience may not understand what a that A military means. bath. A, 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 a sink bath. A sink bath, um, yeah. And then I got busted. Like, the manager found out, and so they, like, terminated my um, office lease, which, hey, I get it. Um, I slept in my condo for a while with no furniture, no electricity. And by some miracle, I was able to sell that condo, but I made no money from it. And um, so then I hotel hopped for a while and then the money ran out. Um, but I couldn't, I just didn't accept that I was homeless. I just thought that like, I was like, that I don't know. I don't know why I didn't accept I was homeless, but I, um, I hotel hopped for as much as I could. I'd go out and do a speaking engagement, take a little money, you know, go to a hotel, take a shower. And this amazing Christian couple took me in, um, in the winter of that year. And I was kind of like a stowaway, like their landlord, they weren't supposed to have anybody else in the house. I'm like sleeping on the couch and like being scarce during the day. And then they were like, Hey, listen, we really think our landlord's onto you. Um, you got to leave. So January, 2017, after the snowstorm, I was like, holy crap, what, what am I going to do? Right. And I remember sleeping in the Walmart parking lot in a Volkswagen Beetle. And I'm thinking, and I had done that a couple of nights, but this night was really, really cold. And I was like, how am I going to make it the whole winter in this car? Mm -hmm. Um, like I'm a female. If anyone catches me, like I was super terrified of what was going to happen. So I went to a homeless shelter in Chesapeake. It's a, like an emergency winter shelter. They churches open up their sanctuaries um, during the winter. You sleep in the sanctuary floor. They give you breakfast, dinner, breakfast, and lunch. And that to me was like, I didn't know. I thought depression was low. That was even lower. Mm-hmm. I, I am in a homeless shelter. Um, it's still really surreal to think about that. I did that. I was there from January to mid April when the program ended. 
um, taking every bus that I could <laughs> to get back and forth to South Norfolk. And then I got a job at a hotel. But even still, I was in a shelter. Like I'd go to this fancy hotel in Virginia Beach, and then I'd, I'd take three or four buses back to South Norfolk to sleep in a shelter. And it's crazy because I, I often think had I never had the suicide attempt, had I never had this mental illness, like that wouldn't have been my life. But in the shelter, that's people's lives for a lot of people. A lot of people that are in the shelter are struggling with addiction and mental illness and their families don't know how to cope or don't want to. And so just put them out. Right. Right. I completely understand that. Like that, that emptiness and that, that like what, what the hell is going on? I've never been in a homeless shelter. I was very fortunate that when I left my abusive relationship, my sister took me in and I was very, very fortunate. She took me and my two daughters in. Uh, but that moment when I decided to leave that situation and I didn't know where I was going to go was like the scariest thing ever is to be like, what is going, how did I make it here? Like, Mm -hmm. how is this my life right now? Like I look back, I told my husband this, I look back on me five years ago and I'm like, who the hell was that person? Like standing in her shower, wanting to end her life. Who was that? Like, that is not me. But Mm -hmm. it's, it's so surreal because when you look back, you're like, that is me that I did go through that. I've experienced that. And what people need to realize listening to this is mental illness can eat away at you if if you if you aren't able to treat it and and i'm so passionate about people being able to get help with mental illness that it be just as important as physical health Mm -hmm. and that people have insurance that covers it and that they're able to get access to you know help with that because you know if you're if you're really sick and you go to the hospital yeah, you're going to owe them, but you could owe them forever and a day. They have to treat you, but that's not how it works for mental illness. And I feel like it should, because mm-hmm. look at all these people that you said were in the homeless shelter with you. They're, they're struggling with these same things and they're not able to get help because it's a cycle. Like they're never going to get out of it if they don't get the help that they need. So it breaks my heart and I'm, I'm thankful that you got out of it. So tell us how you got out of that situation. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting is that um, one of the things that it started to bring some friction with my parents and I was living with them is that I started blogging about my mental health journey. And again, I didn't think anyone was going to care. I had been off television for two years um, and I wrote this blog and all of a sudden in my little social media community, I had a little viral moment, like viewers were sharing with me um, how they had lost loved ones to suicide, how they had survived attempts. I had popular girls from high school that never acknowledged my existence now Mm -hmm. inboxing me with intimate things. And so the more that I was sharing, I felt like I was like releasing so much shame. And when I saw that the world around me was like, yeah, man, that's awesome. It, it started to help me accept that this wasn't like a scarlet letter. Um, But my parents felt like it was a reflection on them and their bad parenting. No parent is, is, uh, is perfect. And I'm convinced that everyone goes through some dysfunction as a child. Right. Um, And I don't, I just don't think that they understood how powerful it was for me to share my story. And it had nothing to do about them. They were like, you're never going to get a job. You'll never get back on air this way. Who's going to date you reading all of this stuff. So that, 
Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Get with it today. Have They're they like, found on Facebook? That's messy. You know, I'm, I have to remember, you know, my parents are really old school, you know, like right. they are pre-Facebook and, you know, you don't air your dirty laundry, let alone in a public forum. So um, when I was in the shelter, I was still blogging. When I was homeless, I was still blogging. And then I got some invitations to go to some churches to speak at suicide prevention walks. And I don't, these people didn't know that I was struggling with homelessness then. Um, but the more and more I shared my story, the more it freed me. The more I, I heard myself say, suicide attempt survivor. I'm working my recovery every single day. It was like this self-fulfilling prophecy and then what I did not imagine is that it would be comforting to other people that they were like, wow, you know, you, you can get back up from this. This isn't the end of your life. And, um, and I saw social media as my only outlet to share that. So I just shared, I, I was like, I started a GoFundMe page. I was like, listen, y'all, I don't know where I'm gonna sleep tonight. People would donate this and that still blows my mind that during that year of homelessness, people donated $4,000. I literally can't tell you how many times that that GoFundMe saved me. So then I, you know, put out there that, Hey guys, you know, the shelter program's ending. I don't know what I'm going to do. I really want to keep this job at the hotel. Another amazing couple, a uh, Christian couple took me in and said, we're just going to help you get back on your feet, pay what you can. And they just like, I was, my soul was able to rest. I didn't have to worry about somebody taking my stuff in a shelter or waking me up or taking, a, you know, all these buses to get down to the oceanfront. Um, that helped me so, so much. And then um, I gave a speech at a suicide prevention conference in Portsmouth, Virginia. Someone said, hey, man, I think you'd be a great peer recovery specialist. Um, a peer recovery specialist is someone with a lived experience of addiction or mental illness that has at least one year in recovery. And is that a good enough place to be able to share their recovery story to help others? That's the basis oh. of being a peer. And um, that's the, that's the biggest difference between peers and clinicians. You know, clinicians are like, you know, they have to keep up this wall about who they are. Peers right. can say, I've been exactly where you are. Right. And you be, know, I can't be your friend if I'm your therapist, I, but a therapist can tell you parts of their personal story. My therapist was like, I was talking I don't remember what, what brought it on, but I was talking about suicide and, and stuff like that. And she's like, you don't know this about me, but you know, a lot of people become therapists because they've been there. And she's like, I was there too, but it wasn't in a way like she was personally like putting it all out there. You know, she was just like, I was, I've been where you have been. I understand, you know, but where it's different where the clinician and what you're talking about is you can be their friend and you can be like, here's my whole story. Right. Instead of just like little tidbit. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a very, it's a very fine line. Really, it really is. I like to think of peering as being like someone's um, empowering people to be their own best advocate. Yes. We're very similar to qualified mental health professionals. We're kind of like, Hey, uh, so you're telling me that these are what your needs are. Did you know you could get these needs met here, 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 and here? Mm -hmm. How can I help you do that? You know, can I get you a bus pass or something like that? So and I'd heard about being a peer, but I couldn't afford the training. And the, the people were like, hey, we love you so much. We'll pay for the training. And um, being a peer specialist taught me so much about living with a mental illness. It's a twofold relationship. Right. I learned about self-care and not self-care and like, I'm getting my hair did. That's not real self-care. That's, that's, that's not. Yeah, they make I it out like, to me. Like, I'm going to go get my nails did. That's self-care. No, self -care. bitch, that's not self-care. 
No. <laughs> Self-care is like, I'm going to go to bed tonight because I'm freaking exhausted. I need some sleep. <laughs> yes. I hadn't thought about that. Like, hey, what does Lauren need to be at her best self? Probably about seven hours sleep a day. I need to have three meals a day. Um, I need to be around really positive, encouraging people. To yes. me, negative Nancy's is, is not good for me. So I learned about self-care. I learned about boundaries, which I yes. boundaries are huge. They're my jam, girl. <laughs> I teach every time I work with a client, we talk about boundaries. I'm, in I life coaching, not I'm not a therapist yet, but in life I didn't realize boundaries. that I was boundaryless. And then I learned how to best help somebody. I definitely was one of those people who thought you got a problem. Okay. It's now my problem. We carrying it together. Right. No, <laughs> right. I didn't know these things. Too many loads, too many loads, <laughs> too many loads. And so, um, I, so, uh, becoming a peer connected me to the national Alliance on mental illness, um, and support groups through that and talking to other people who are going through that experience of living with a mental illness, whether it be depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, sharing coping skills with each other. Right. I now do um, presentations and I'm going to be facilitating through NAMI, which I'm so excited about. And uh, I also saw how ravaging addiction can be because when I was a peer, I worked with people who were addicted to opioids and I just never, I think I definitely was one of those people that thought addiction was a choice, you know, like, Oh, you choose to take that substance or whatever. And, um, it was extremely, extremely eye-opening, um, and that in the correlation between mental illness and substance use. And so becoming a peer is really what got me out of homelessness. And I must say, the more I've shared my story, the more it's allowed people to help me. Yeah. Um, crazy story. I, one of my, a, a person I did an interview on many years ago became uh, really rich off Bitcoin. Like, <laughs> I can't make Bitcoin. this stuff up. Yes. He became a mini millionaire off Bitcoin. He had read a blog of mine about how things were, um, were going really hard. And so he said, Hey, um, I want to help you live independently again. I'm going to pay for the first six months of your rent and whatever security deposit, um, you have. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, yeah, I really believe in you. Um, I see a lot of potential in you and you're never going to be able to reach that potential if you don't get out of homelessness. And so he was how I was able to move back into my own place and uh, become independent again. But a big part of why I've been able to rebuild my life is because I've shared my story, which is unreal, really unreal. Yeah, no, stories are powerful. That's why I shared them on the podcast because I could sit here and talk until I'm blue in the face about all the things I know and how knowledgeable I am about all these things and even share parts of my story. But that's just one story. And that's why I think your storytelling night is really powerful because there are multiple stories that are focusing on mental health. But I was actually talking to a mutual friend, Christina Kimbrough, who's actually who connected us about stories and how important it is that we either, we either be out of them or be coming out of them to share. Uh, because you want to, yes, stories are hard and they bring people down. Like we're talking about mental illness here. This is a serious subject. But now we're starting to see that upward curve of you coming out of, you know, homelessness, rock bottom moment. And in order to share a story, we need to share it and show that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Because if we just share the story and there's no light, people are like, what the hell? My whole life is going to come crashing down on my head. Like, how can I do this? And that's why you'll see 
And Lauren, I know you're a listener of the podcast and, and all the listeners listening is when we tell the stories on the podcast, we always have that, like, I don't want to say happy ending, but light at the end of the story, some hope there's something there because we don't ever want to leave people thinking, shit, my whole soul was just ripped out of me. Like what just happened here? Like right. I'm going to end up like in a homeless shelter and, and never have any hope. And you know, yeah. but we see with your story, Lauren, is there is hope. And that, not just through you sharing your story, but through the community that you surround yourself with, the positive people you mentioned earlier, those are the people that are helping you to become the Lauren you want to be. So where is Lauren now? You, you had this guy help you get back on your feet, paid for your six month rent. You now have a puppy who is a great care provider for you. So tell us about where you are now. Yeah. So, um, so now I have an emotional support animal named Boo. I adopted him from Humane Society and he's just the love of my life. He is cute. He's so adorable. And so, um, so interesting how we're all connected. Um, I told, I sat down with Christina one day and I said, you know, storytelling has been so impactful for me, whether it's like motivational speaking or sharing on a blog. I want to give that liberty to other people that maybe don't have the platform that I have. And I said, this is what I want to do. I want to pre-select speakers and give them an audience once a month. I said, but I don't know if I can do this. I've tried events before. They've been unsuccessful. And she's like, I believe in you. She yes. Was my, little, my little spark of hope. And I said, all right, let's go for it. And so we did the first storytelling night in September and about 25 people came and it was amazing. Uh, we had people who were survivors of domestic violence. Uh, uh, Christina shared her mental health story. Um, and it was, I mean, it was powerful for me to see. Yeah. I could see it, some stuff just breaking off of people, them sharing that story. And then I took it on the road. I did a storytelling night in Lynchburg. That was amazing. I did my third one in November. Over 40 people came. It was so packed in there. I'm like moving seats. And I said, man, there's something about this storytelling that is magnetic like to me social media proves that everyone wants to tell their story they all do that's all what we're doing we right. become our own little media like miniature media people so how do i give people a platform to share that in a good healthy way maybe that's the thing that propels someone to be a speaker or a writer or something mm -hmm. um and so i'm just so 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 amazed by how those nights are going. I, I always say Good Girl Chronicles is to help people own their truth, accept it. Once you accept it, you can live it. Okay, I've got this thing. I've survived it. Right. I can keep on trucking. Once you live it, and like you said, you're at a place of healing, then you can share it. It's so important to be at a place of healing before you share your so, story. I so agree with that. Yes. Otherwise, you're sucking the ever living life out of people when you talk about right. it. You know, that doesn't mean like when we're struggling, we shouldn't share, right? That's not what I'm saying. And some people might misunderstand that. I mean, yes, your close friends and family, you want to say, I am struggling right now. I, I need some help. Can you please help me? Now that's very important. And I don't ever believe anybody should fake like, I'm so happy when you're really dying inside, right? But we don't want to get out in the public eye and with strangers and share these really deep vulnerable parts of ourselves if we haven't healed and moved through those things because what's going to happen is now when you you're going to see judgment back from those people because you now suck their soul and they're like where are we going with this i don't know what's going on right 
and it's going to start to trigger things inside of you. But when we're, we're healed and we move past that, even if some people judge us, we're like, whatever, it's not for you, dude. Um, but most people are going to say, wow, look at what you've been through. Look at how you overcome this obstacle. And it's so important that we heal. And I see that with you, Lauren, is how you heal. It's very, hey, I've been through this. This is awful. But look at where I am now. Look how powerful my story is and how it's helping other people. And look, you too can overcome this, what you're going through and share your story as well. And I want people to know mental illness is not a label that you need to consume and be like, this is my life. It is just a part of you. Just kind of like your arm is a part of you, but you wouldn't be like, I am my arm. You're not your arm. (laughs) You know, it's like, you're not depression. But you do experience depression. And, you know, the same goes for me as there's times that I have to be really, really aware of the triggers that go on with me. There's certain people I can't be around because if I'm around them, I know I'm going to be very triggered. I have people on social media that I see their posts and I'm like, I got to, I got to step away because if I don't step away, it's going to, it's going to be really bad for me. Um, and so it's really important that we be aware and, and, and people see when they're listening to that, that this it's not the end, right? Mm-hmm. Like, look at where you are now. You got boo. You got these storytelling nights. You got all these awesome things that are going on and you're surrounded with great people. I mean, recently you moved in with some awesome friends, didn't you? I did. I did. Oh man, Carol's amazing. Like, and you know, she was a previous you, podcast guest. <laughs> I need to listen to her podcast. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think when you definitely, when mental illness uh, fractures your relationship with your family, you definitely could have some trust and abandonment issues, which I'm working through. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, Carol's amazing. And I feel like I'm like her black daughter. I've moved in here. And- <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that's, you know, been a huge part of my recovery is building up a support system. Like I know that I can reach out to people and say, Hey, I'm feeling symptomatic or, Hey, I'm going to need to you to be there for me. And being at a point where I can say, this is what I need from you is so huge. Um, and I think to hit to your point about storytelling, there's a difference between like a war story and a recovery story. Yes. A victim story and a survivor story. Correct. Correct. And I, I know that people need to see survivors because life is hard and it can break you down and survivors remind you that you have the strength and fortitude to get back up. So I'm always looking for survivor stories and that's what I always try to propel. Also, um, you know, people don't are starting to understand that recovery goes for mental health too, not just addiction. You know, I live with mental illness. So every day that means I, I make a, very conscious choice to take my med because I know that's what keeps me my best, my best self. I don't have shame about that anymore. I go to cert, um, therapy biweekly. Me and, um, too. Yeah, <laughs> for therapy. Yay, therapy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't know because of this, the way things were in my childhood, I didn't realize that I had experienced some trauma that I'm right. working through and making peace with. Making peace with the trauma of your family totally turning their back on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, the boundaries issue, I didn't realize I had a boundaries issue until I started therapy and I am a, um, a very spiritual person. So for me, um, you know, practicing my spirituality, those are the three things that keep me mentally well. Do I still have low moments? Yes. yes. Do I still have anxiety attacks? Yes. I had one at the beginning of this month. Okay. It still happens. <laughs> 
but I've learned how to not beat myself up for those moments and how to um, use coping mechanisms to pull me out of it so I don't you know, fall even deeper. So, you know, you can live with this. That's what I really want people to know is that um, you can live with a mental illness. Uh, and I want to talk about it so much to the point where it's normal. Me right? too. This, yeah. Yeah. Amen. I'm right there with you, sister. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my goal is to normalize mental yeah. illness. Like, like, Hey, it, you know, it's okay for aunt, whoever to have diabetes it's okay for me to have depression. Okay. It's just affecting a different part of my body here. That's right. That's right. So as we wrap up the podcast, Lauren, what is something that you would like to leave my audience with or, or a collection of things, anything that maybe we haven't covered or anything you just want them to know? Wow. That's a good thought. Well, I, you know, I'm all about social media. I don't care what anybody says. I think social media used the right way can be so powerful. Use the right way. Yes. The right way. Because <laughs> I have to tell you, I've had to flesh out some things on my social media because it's just not, right it's not good for you. my mental state. Yes. So um, I am all over social media. My um, Facebook is Good Girl Chronicles LLC. I'm very open and transparent. So I love when people comment and engage um, with me. And um, I think I know in my heart that storytelling is tremendously powerful and it can save lives. When I say storytelling, yeah. you know, I hope that when people hear my story, maybe it gives, it, it makes them realize I need to have a talk with my daughter or my son or my loved one um, and be okay with wherever they're at, just loving them right. wherever they're at. Um, that's really what it's about. It's about, about getting people to be more open and transparent. I couldn't agree more. And I'll link every, all of your links up in the show notes. So anybody who wants to connect with you, they can totally do that. And of course, you know, everybody in the inspired women community, if you're not part of the Facebook group, get on it, ladies that are listening, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be sharing yeah, the episode and everything there so that everybody can check it out and get in contact with you. And I'll be linking up uh, your next storytelling event so that, you know, whenever that might be when we air this episode so that people can go and attend it. And if they're in the Hampton Roads area, if not, get a hold of Lauren. She does video. She does all sorts of kind of things. So you can connect with her. It's really awesome. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story. Thank you so much for this platform. I love your openness and transparency. So I'm just so honored to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.